he said that he sold everything to buy a flock of sheep to become a shepherd and that it has always been his dream to become a shepherd. Even though he lives in this house that's quite modest, it's just one room. The house is made of mud. It didn't have electricity or running water. But he was the happiest guy I've ever met. Hello, and welcome to Inside Out, the podcast about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there. I'm your host, Jane Z. Hi, friends. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while or just heard a few episodes, you might know that I spent a year studying abroad in France way back when. This was like almost 10 years ago. That year was huge for me in terms of growing up and learning about the world. And one of the ways I did that was through couch surfing. I met so many amazing people who just welcomed me into their homes and took me and like showed me around their cities. I was so grateful for those experiences, the majority of which were positive, that I decided to host Couchsurfers when I moved back to Montreal. One of my guests was this guy from northern Sweden named Anton, who's been a big supporter of this podcast from day one. And we actually have Anton to thank for connecting me with today's guest, Marsha Jean. Marsha is a young woman who's been solo traveling the world since she was 18. She's not your typical backpacker. In five years, she's done some things that most people would consider nuts. She hitchhiked alone from Iran through France when she was 19. She rode a bicycle alone through Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Pakistan, and couchsurfed in places that are considered super dangerous, like Kandahar, which is the former capital of the Taliban, and Iranian Baluchistan. In today's episode, we unpack some of her wild adventures. We talk about how Marsha stays safe and supports herself financially, some of the amazing people she's met, and how she sees her travel as a pilgrimage for self-discovery rather than for tourism or leisure. Before we get into it, I should say that Marsha's story actually starts out in a pretty dark place. So trigger warning that we'll be touching on topics of depression and suicide. Marsha grew up in an abusive home in Hong Kong, and when she turned 18, she fled to Australia, where her plan was to spend all her savings and then take her life. Fortunately for Marsha, traveling saved her life, and not only did she survive, but she discovered many, many reasons to keep living. For anyone that's going through depression or suicidal thoughts, you're not alone. I've had my own fair share of mental health struggles over the years that I've just started opening up about on Instagram. More on that to come later when I share my story more fully. The thing that I found that's harder than going through a dark time itself is speaking up and asking for help. That said, there is help out there, and I've linked some resources in the show notes and episode webpage. Thank you to my amazing friend, Christine Morrissey, who's a clinical social work grad student for helping gather these resources. If you're in a crisis, definitely call 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you're in the United States, the number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, I'll leave the number in the show notes as well as some texting resources and ways to find a counselor. (sighs) All right, with all that said, I hope you can find some inspiration today from Marsha's story. Here she is sharing a timeline of her travels. So I started when I left home at 18, 
bought one way ticket to Australia. I actually had depression and I wanted to commit suicide after spending all the money I had, but I ended up not doing so. And so now I have been working and traveling around the world for five years. I work in hospitality. I've been to Southeast Asia, Middle East, Europe, and Central Asia. And now because of the pandemic, every, all of my plans are on hold. My favorite memories were probably of, for example, when I hitchhiked from Iran to France. Um, another one is when I cycled across Central Asia, across Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Northern Pakistan. And one time I did a trekking in Afghanistan. I rented a donkey and trekked for 19 days. Those are definitely my best memories from my travels so far. Wow, those are huge adventures that not many people would, uh, you know, have the courage or not sure what you would call it, but to jump into a big adventure like that. And at the beginning, you did you know, just briefly mention uh, around mental health and depression and suicide. And I don't want to, um, you know, make light of that. I do want to dig into mental health later on in the show, but maybe we can start off by talking a bit more about your adventures. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. First of all, how did you decide to hitchhike from Iran to France and even in Afghanistan and Pakistan? I went to Iran because I I was 19 and I had just finished traveling around Southeast Asia and I had no clue what to do in life. And in Iran, they had uh, the Iranian New Year coming up. So I thought that I would go there and just see how things go. And I arrived and people were really kind. And I was already expecting it because travelers I've met who have been there have all told me amazing things about traveling in Iran. Some people have told me how they even hitchhiked and that it was very easy because people were very kind. So I decided to try hitchhiking in Iran because why not? And by the time my visa finished, I just decided to, okay, let me go to Iraqi Kurdistan and so on. So I ended up hitchhiking all the way to France just spontaneously. What kinds of people did you meet along the way? I have to say the main reason why I love hitchhiking so much is all the people that I get to meet because um, I'm putting myself out there. I am interacting with so many locals at the same time. And I have been picked up by super friendly families that have invited me to their homes, invited me for dinners. Someone invited me to a trip. They drove me into a mountain. Definitely, I wouldn't have never had all these adventures if I didn't hitchhike. Were you worried about it at first, like about safety? And and how do you know when it's safe to get in someone's car? Oh, yeah, definitely. Safety is the number one thing that stops people from trying to hitchhike. Before this trip, I was already hitchhiking around Southeast Asia and Australia whenever I had the chance. And it really got to me when I met this lady in middle of Australia and she told me how she's been traveling for 10 years and I couldn't believe it and she told me that well I hitchhike and do this and that and you don't need to be rich to hit to um, travel the world and for me really the first reason to try hitchhiking was to save money especially in Australia 
And then soon it just became this also challenge that I set for myself to prove that I'm brave enough to do it. And that the, all the adventures that comes with it, all the opportunities, these are things you cannot, money cannot buy, right? And hitchhiking, it's not just standing on the side of the road and randomly going to different cars. Of course, there are different ways to minimize the risk. For example, going to gas stations where they have cameras, talking to the people that would take you and only going to cars of couples and families. Mm, interesting. Yeah. When I imagine hitchhiking, I picture like getting in a trucker's car, like getting in a truck with a random dude. <laughs> yeah, that's- but that's a good tip, though, going with couples and families in situations where you're not alone. What are some other tips you would say for someone who's never hitchhiked? I would recommend them to read online about hitchhiking in specific regions of the world that they want to do it in because in every country is different and to do it at gas stations in daylight time and to start with only going into cars with families because when you first start hitchhiking you need to build up this self-confidence to listen to your gut feelings and to say no from what I've heard I think most people who have difficulties hitchhiking is because they don't know how to say no And they don't know how to listen to their gut feeling that even though this group of people or this man or this woman are nice, but you just have this weird feeling, you just got to say no. Or even after five minutes into the drive, you got to just say no. Okay, stop. Have you had to do that? Yeah, so I've had to learn some lessons. Fortunately, I've never had like any major things happening to me, but I've certainly gotten into some cars with some dodgy people that I've had to get out, get myself out of the situation. I don't want to recommend everyone to go hitchhike, but if you want to try, it's not as difficult as you think. Yeah, I mean, I I guess like most people in the world are not out there to harm you. It's it's more like the risk of the unknown, right? Like what's going to happen. Um, and you mentioned you went on some adventures that you never would have gone if you went hitchhiking. So there's a big possible reward there too. So let's say, you know, you get driven to a town or a mountain, like somewhere you didn't plan to be. Where do you end up staying? Like, did you stay in hostels or did you crash with people? A lot of the times the people that take me and if they know that I don't have a place to stay, they would invite me to their homes. And sometimes I've had to sleep in a gas station at night or in a roadside restaurant just because um, I couldn't find a ride and I had to, and it was too dangerous to continue late at night. So I would rather continue the day. Wow. Do you bring a sleeping bag with you? Yeah, I have a tent and sleeping bag and mattress. So you're like backpacking across the world. What what are some other essentials that you keep in your backpack? Besides the normal things like your clothes and whatever, I started keeping a pepper spray with me. I don't really recommend it because it's not legal in every country, but I do keep one with me just in case. Do you keep like a compass or anything? Oh, actually, I had a compass when I was cycling around Central Asia, but I... I didn't really need it because the route I was taking was along rivers and valleys where I definitely could not be lost. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that cycling trip? How did you decide to cycle through Central Asia? And when did you switch from hitchhiking to cycling? 
So I had just finished working in London and I wanted to go to Central Asia. Um, I wanted to hitchhike through Central Asia, but then on my first day in Kyrgyzstan, in Bishkek in the hostel, I met this woman from France. She had just walked through the Pamir Highway alone without a tent or a sleeping bag. And I was shocked. She told me it's because she was traveling by shared taxis, by joining shared taxis and how she was in a box instead of being in nature. And because she didn't have a bicycle, she decided to walk. And after meeting her, I decided, okay, there's no way I'm gonna hitchhike through Central Asia. I will buy a bike and start cycling. And how, how did it go? So I actually wasn't that good on a bike at first. I've never really cycled much, but out in nature, it's pretty easy to cycle. And I've never felt more independent and more free in my life because not only I am on my own, literally I could go anywhere I want to and stay for, have, for however long I wanted to. Um, I was in control of everything. So where did you stay? Most of the times I was camping. And sometimes when I go through villages, people would invite me to stay in their homes. And sometimes when I'm passing a town where I wanted to um, take a rest, I would stay in a hostel or a guest house. What, what countries or um, towns did you end up going through? And what were the people like? Okay, so I cycled through Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and the north of Pakistan. And mostly in the mountainous regions where the people were uh, mostly nomadic nomads or they have their own culture and language that's different from the main culture of their country. For example, in Tajikistan, I was cycling through Waki villages where they spoke Waki and they had, they had a different culture and even religion. Um, in the north of Pakistan, there were also a big mix of people from different ethnic backgrounds. How did you communicate with them? Did they speak English? Most of the time we communicate through body language, really. And sometimes they would have people who speak English. And surprisingly, um, I met more people who spoke English than I expected. Hmm. So it was um, amazing when I would meet someone who spoke English and then they would introduce me to their families and we could talk. That's amazing. So how long did that cycle trip last? I think it lasted around five months. I was cycling really slowly. Sometimes I would just cycle four kilometers. Yeah, I mean, after a while, you get tired. Yeah, and um, what's the point of going too fast? You know, you miss out all the good things. Yeah, it's true. You must have seen some beautiful sights. Yeah, Central Asia is really, really beautiful. I'm surprised that it's not more popular as a tourist destination than it is. Yeah, you talk about that a little bit in your blog and your Instagram is that your way of traveling is often going off the beaten path and, you know, visiting countries that maybe the mass media paints a very different picture of, you know, places like Iran, Iraqi Kurdistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan. How do you choose these countries that you visit? So I have to say that perhaps because of how mass media portray them, the elusiveness kind of made me even want to go there more because it's harder to really know what the country is like than somewhere else where a lot of people 
already go there and they write blog posts about it. From the people I've met who have already been there before, they've all told me that um, the people are generally really nice. The places are beautiful, and that um, if you know how to make friends there and stay with locals, you're gonna have a great time. And that is exactly what happened. I kind of became addicted to going to Central Asia and the Middle East just because of how hospitable the people are and how it's completely not what other people would expect. It feels, yeah, it feels rewarding to be able to show other people through my photos and stories how their stereotypes are not, right? Would you say that you found a home away from home in those places? Yeah, definitely. I found many different homes away from homes. Almost everywhere I go, I get adopted by a new family. Oh, oh. it's like you've got family everywhere you travel. It sounds like you're also tapped into this online travel community. Can you talk a bit more about that? Like, have you made, you know, friends with other travel bloggers? Like, do you have a community where you guys talk about these things? I'm definitely through Instagram or forums and blogs. I've been able to become friends with travel bloggers or photographers. And um, it has given me a really nice online community and new friends that I could always um, share stories with and get advice. I sense a bit of a theme here too, where uh, you mentioned, you know, there are a few women who inspired you, that woman you met in Australia who hitchhiked, and then the other woman who walked across Central Asia. Is your goal too to kind of show other women how, you know, these adventures are worth it and there's more than uh, what we see in the media? Is that kind of one of your, would you say your mission? The main reason why I travel is really for myself um, because I'm curious and also um, perhaps I choose to go to such risky kind of destinations because I want to prove to myself that I am able to do it. I hitchhike to give myself more confidence so that I can survive in this big world where every day you come across messages telling you that you're less than your worth, especially since I'm a woman. It's been really empowering traveling alone and especially to places where people wouldn't expect me to go. I want to dive into that a little bit deeper because you started your travel journey five years ago in a pretty dark place. And then a lot has happened along the way. Can you talk a bit more about that journey and what travel means to you? I first started to travel as a way to end my life. It all started because I was so low at a point in my life where I was willing to take my life. It all changed the moment I realized the world was nothing like what I thought it would be. I had an abusive home where I had literally no self-worth or self-confidence because of that. My view of the world was completely off. For me, travel is less of for leisure or for pleasure. It's more of like a pilgrimage, not a religious pilgrimage, but a pilgrimage where people used to go on in order to search for a new or expanded meaning about themselves of life and through this 
experience can lead to a personal transformation. This is interesting to see how much, how different travel is now compared to many years ago, for example, during the medieval times. Besides the obvious reasons why people travel for commerce or for survival, I think in the old times, travel was more linked to something that it's a hardship. It's not supposed to be easy. And it's a journey you take for education and to for transformation. It was not for pleasure mostly. And for me, most of my travels, I do, I think it's the same. Yeah, you don't hear that version of travel very much anymore, especially with the glossy Instagram, you know, aesthetic of like traveling to beautiful places for the sake of catching that photo. But um, yeah, exactly. where did you come across these ideas of pilgrimage? Um, I guess it's a lot of different blog posts and articles I've read collectively over the past five years. I especially struggle to explain to people what travel means to me and how because when I tell people that I'm just traveling full-time they would think oh you're just um, enjoying life all the time right but many long-term travelers would probably agree with me that travel is not, not just for leisure it's for education and by putting yourself into more difficult situations, such as, you know, instead of spending a lot of money, staying in nice hotels, going to um, expensive countries, I would rather hitchhike, couch surf, and go to places where there are no guest houses. For me, these are the most rewarding experience. Yeah, it's like you're doing it for the challenge. And through that, you grow as a person. Um, let's talk a bit about about couch surfing. Um, that's something that yeah. you and I both have in common. It's how we met actually through a mutual couch surfing friend. Oh, um, yeah. How has been your experience couch surfing? And you mentioned you even couch surfed in Iran. Is that right? Yeah, um, in Iran, actually, almost every person I've stayed with was from couch surfing. And surprisingly, uh, couch surfing is what well, at least it used to be very popular in every country, even in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in places that you least expect it, really. And it has enabled me to travel, honestly, because, for example, in Afghanistan, I wouldn't feel safe to just go to a random hotel. I wouldn't know what to do. Um, and with Kasovin, I'm connected with a local that shows me how they live and enable me to have an experience instead of just being an outsider trying to understand what's happening just by watching which is not possible that's ironic that you say that because you would think at least in the west like in western europe and north america you would trust way more a hotel or or a professional you know, hospitality place rather than going to someone's home. But you did mention before, too, that in these regions, there's a really strong culture of hospitality. Can you say a bit yeah. more about that? Yes. Yeah, so in the Muslim culture, most people have told me that they see guests as gifts from God. 
And that is their honor and their joy to be able to be hospitable and show their guests the best side um, of everything that they have. Me, especially as an Asian woman, I have been just experiencing the best hospitality ever. I, I cannot say the same for everyone. For example, if you were a man or if you were different, if you have a different skin color, I don't know if you would receive the same hospitality. But personally, for me, that's, that was my experience. Um, I remember when we talked last, you mentioned a story about when you went into a village and they slaughtered a goat for you. Yeah, I don't think it's happened only one time. It's happened many times. I have lost count. But um, because I am such a respected guest and a lot of times when I go to a village where they don't usually have guests, it's in their tradition to slaughter a goat for me, to offer me something really nice. Luckily, I'm not vegetarian, so it's fine for me. And also, it just shows, it, it makes me feel so humble because I could tell that they don't usually slaughter goat unless someone has a wedding, um, it's New Year, and they usually live a very humble lifestyle. They don't have much material things. So for a guest like me, someone they've never met before, and they decide to give me a goat, which might be worth more than a month's salary for some people. Yeah, these experiences, you hear it, but when you actually experience it for yourself, you will just not forget it and try to be more humble. Yeah. And you mentioned too, like your way of giving back to these people was, you know, maybe buying them groceries or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's kind of common sense, you know, you have to give back to them because otherwise you don't have to, they don't expect it, but I always do it. Um, the easiest way I found is really just to go to a bazaar that's nearby and just buy them groceries. And usually I print photos out and write them nice things. I have these bracelets that I will buy um, and stock up on and give to people. That's really thoughtful. Maybe we can talk about your your experience working in the hospitality industry. First, maybe you can tell us, how do you support yourself financially? Yes, firstly, I was lucky enough to have an Australian citizenship. So it's very easy for me to, find, to be able to work without work visa or permit. And I, I've worked in cafes, restaurants, um, in a school diving center, in a casino. Different long-term travelers have different ways to sustain their travels. Some people are digital nomads. Some people do the same that I do. Some people do farm work. For me, this has been the best model so far um, before the pandemic happened. This, <laughs> this gave me so much freedom and ability to live anywhere I want and to sustain myself. Um, but of course, I work in countries such as England and Australia, where the wage is much higher. And then I go, I travel in countries that are much more affordable, which is mm -hmm. why this is, this is possible. It's interesting. You must have also met a lot of different kinds of people through working at these places, like a casino, a scuba diving center. Yeah. Um, what have you learned about people that's different from how you approach them as a traveler? Well, when I'm traveling, I'm interested in getting to know everyone. I want to know as much about a country as possible. And the best way to know it is through talking to as many people as possible. When I'm settled in a place working, of course, it's less of that. I am 
usually a bit burnt out from traveling and I just want to be by myself, save up and live a quiet life. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. And um, you mentioned being burnt out from travels and travel is super tiring, like having to make new decisions every day and like think about, yeah. you know, where you're going to sleep, where you're going to eat. So even though you've been on this journey for five years, some of that time has been like a like recharging time. A lot of the time. Yes. And also I travel really slow to allow myself not to be burnt out in order to enjoy it. Did you learn that from being burned out like early on in your travels? Yeah, definitely. There has been many um, times that I just feel like I need to be alone and couldn't stand having to talk to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Then I would stay in a hostel instead of couch surf and let myself just do nothing. Um, No new sightseeing, no meeting new people, just read and exercise. That sounds nice sometimes. You just need to reset. Would you say that you prefer to travel alone and why? Definitely. Um, everyone has a different personality. But for me, I have seen many times how when I'm traveling with another person, I interact much less with the locals because then I am just making plans with the other person and all of my attention goes to the other person. Um, and this is especially true when I am traveling in the Middle East or Central Asia, where the culture is quite different. And there have been a few days where I would have met up with a foreign male traveler and decide to spend a few days together. And then it just ends up the locals only talk to him instead of me, because in their culture, it's rude to talk to the woman instead of the man. Then, of course, I I want the attention back. You want to be the protagonist in your pilgrimage. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, you also take some very beautiful photos that you post oh, on your blog you. and Instagram. Do you see your camera as kind of a companion to your travels? Yeah, and it's my way to, it has enabled me to do so many things, to tell stories through my photos, to document my travels, and also to connect with other people. When you don't have a common language, um, it's one way to do something with locals, especially kids. Once I take my camera out and everybody is lining up and asking me to take their photos. Wow. So is that how you got some of those portraits you have on your site? Yeah. um, Most of the portraits are really um, people think that it's hard to get portraits, but it's really easy if, if you approach the people with the purpose to just be friends with them and talk to them. And then if you're interested to take a photo, then you tell them, ask them, can I take a photo? And then, of course, you have to ask them, can I put it on Facebook, post it on social media? Can I show it to my friends? And if they say no, I just delete the photo. Um, there's no point to keep a photo. I know it's for memory, but I've seen it already. So Yeah, keep it in your head. Would you describe yourself as a nomad? And do you consider a lifestyle and see yourself continuing it in the future? Yeah, I for sure consider myself a nomad because I don't have a I don't have a base. Even though I have friends that hold my luggage or places I put my luggage, um, I don't have a place where I think that okay, I would one day settle there. At least not yet. Yeah, I think I will continue it at least in my twenties and maybe my thirties. I will start to think about settling down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because how old are you now? I'm twenty three. Okay. 
Yeah. So you have plenty of time. Yeah, I have a long time. <laughs> Is there any like one particular person uh, that you met in your travels that you um, will always come back to and be like, wow, like this person really changed my life? There have been many persons like this. So I was once invited by this man to have dinner in with his family in a village in Pakistan. And he spoke fluent English, I would say. And he used to work as a tour guide for tourists who went to Pakistan before 9-11 and all that happened. He said that he sold everything to buy a flock of sheep to become a shepherd and that it has always been his dream to become a shepherd. Even though he lives in this house that's quite modest, it's really just a little room with just one room. The house is made of mud. Um, it didn't have electricity or running water. But he was the happiest guy I've ever met. And he was telling me many things that I wouldn't expect to hear from someone in a little village in the north of Pakistan who was telling me how his views about the world, how he doesn't care about religion, and that everyone is free and what's important is love and kindness and that he wish he can tell everyone how happy it is that he became a shepherd. Wow, that is the most wholesome story ever. You read about, you read these stories all the time. There are people who are so humble, you know, but when you meet someone, you, you actually see that they're actually so happy. Every time you have depressive thoughts, you just think back on these people and you're like, man, what am I worrying about? Time to get some, uh, get a flock of sheep. <laughs> yeah, uh, honestly. I've met some pretty insane travelers that have inspired me to continue my nomadic lifestyle instead of settling down and getting a degree. I'll talk about Miriam Duk. She's a boxer from Switzerland. She actually has written a book. And we met in Islamabad, Pakistan by chance because we were both staying with the same castering host. And she was hitchhiking. She had just hitchhiked alone from Switzerland. And her story was really inspiring. And it kind of made me feel like the reason why I went to Islamabad was to meet this person. She has had a really tough life that she wrote in her book. <clears throat> so she basically has this genetic disorder and a family that didn't support her. Um, and she's had more than two heart surgeries where she could have passed away. And that normally people with her conditions are on wheelchairs, but she's such a fighter and she's not afraid of the pain of exercising that she is a professional boxer and really strong travels the world on her own and is really happy the things with these stories the inspirational stories of people you meet is that it's it's just another story of another inspiring person but when you actually hear the story from them and see how they have such an amazing attitude to life i'm sure you guys had a, a special time together and some things are hard to retell you know you just have to live it so you had mentioned that some of your um, inspirations or a lot of your inspirations come from other women travelers what are your thoughts around um, being a lone traveler as a female but also an Asian woman uh, one of the biggest reasons why I share my stories on the internet literally is 
to inspire other women, especially Asian women. I have no reason to share photos online. It's kind of time consuming for me, but I do it because I grew up without any figures in my life that I could look up to who is not only Asian, but also an Asian woman in the adventure genre. You see many, you see many um, photos of usually Caucasian men being adventurous, hosting documentaries. In the past, most of the most famous pilgrims, ancient explorers were all males. For me, I grew up in a very sexist family environment, being told that I'm not worth anything. It's um, really satisfying to be able to do something people don't expect and to show people. I sometimes actually get messages literally telling me that I'm going to be raped one day or that I am the reason why women get killed when traveling. But um, these messages even give me more motivation because firstly, violence against women happens everywhere in the world. It's not just that I'm traveling. And secondly, there are people who do extreme sports men who do the same as me, who travel in a much more risky way, and yet they don't get these comments, but I do. People do extreme sports, you know, Alex Honnold climbed El Cap, and nobody, well, I'm sure people say bad things to him, but I feel like as a woman, especially Asian woman, traveling alone, it pisses a lot of people off, just because they believe I'm not capable, and they want me to believe that I'm not capable. Just because I'm an Asian woman, doesn't mean that uh, it should be a lot more risky for me than a man to do so. I mean, the fact that you have done these things is so inspiring. And I'm, I'm really glad that you do share your stories and share your photos and show like, hey, this is possible. I mean, obviously, there's still, um, <laughs> we don't live in a perfect world. And there's a lot of stereotypes and depending on how you look like you will get treated differently in different places but I think you are really pushing the envelope for us to realize that like a small Asian woman traveling the world solo like it's 2020 this is possible you're such an inspiration and uh, you can tell just by how many people follow you like it's it's amazing and yeah that's that's what makes me happy if someone can get the courage to go follow their own dreams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whatever that may look like, right? And for you, would you say you're living your dream? Yeah, why not? Um, I am doing everything the best that I can. I'm following my heart, what to do in my life. So what's next for you once this pandemic blows over? Well, I don't want to think too much I definitely want to go on another adventure um my bike is in Pakistan right now if none of this had happened I would have continued cycling all the way to Tibet right now it's impossible to plan cool um well this has been wonderful and thank you so much thank for, you for spending- having me yeah of course thanks again to Marsha for sharing her story here on Inside Out what did you think of today's episode Let me know by leaving a review on iTunes, or you can DM me directly on Instagram at InsideOutWithJane. If you liked today's episode, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hope you have a wonderful week, and I will talk to you next Tuesday.